Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Minnesota is home to one of the largest Hmong populations in the United States. And I'm proud to say Gustavus is the alma mater of the leading scholar of the Hmong diaspora, Dr. Chia Vang, who is herself Hmong. Dr. Vang graduated Gustavus in 1994, its first Hmong graduate, with majors in political science and French. She went on to earn an MA in public affairs and a PhD in American studies from the University of Minnesota. Since 2006, she has been a member of the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where she directs the Hmong Diaspora Studies Program and teaches courses in 20th century U.S. history, Cold War Asia, Asian American history, Hmong history, refugee migration, and transnational and diasporic communities. In addition to teaching, she has served as Associate Vice Chancellor in the University's Division of Global Inclusion and Engagement, and currently is Interim Chief Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Officer. A prolific scholar, Dr. Vang's many publications and presentations include articles, reviews and chapters, conference papers, invited talks and keynote addresses, and one indispensable book after another. The latter include Hmong in Minnesota, Hmong America, Reconstructing Community and Diaspora, Claiming Place on the Agency of Hmong Women, and most recently, Prisoner of Wars, a Hmong fighter pilot story of escaping death and confronting life. An active public intellectual as well, she has been interviewed for radio and TV, served as an advisor to the Minnesota History Center's We Are Hmong Minnesota exhibit, and was instrumental in developing and facilitating the Hmong Milwaukee Civic Engagement Project. Writing and speaking as both an academic and Hmong woman, Professor Vang has greatly enriched our understanding of Hmong people, who too often have been reduced to a homogenous group of simple mountainous Laotian farmers who aided the U.S. war in Southeast Asia and were rendered victims and refugees by it. Like her scholarship, her own story is quite compelling, and it's a real treat to speak with her about both for the podcast. So welcome, Chia. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Let's start um, at the beginning. Um, tell us a little bit about your, uh, before we get to Gustavus, tell us a little bit about your your growing up, where you were born, where you grew up. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me. Gustavus has a very important uh, you know, place in my, my life, and so I'm pleased to be here. So from the very beginning, I, I was born in Laos um, and approximately 1971. And there's a reason why that I say that, because People didn't keep, you know, most people like my parents who were villagers, uh, farmers, they didn't keep track of, you know, uh, you know, what day we were born. I mean, we they remember we were born during the harvest season or the planting season. So they didn't mm. keep track of the exact date um, in 1971, approximately only because they also didn't keep track of years. They didn't live that way. But um my uncle remembered my uncle who served in the you know secret army that worked with the u.s during the the u.s secret war in laos or the larger vietnam war my uncle was drafted and so he went to he he was drafted he went to training in june of 1971 and he said that's he, he remembers that I was just born when he had to go. So hmm. it, it is through his recollection that um, we were able to find a, a 
month of my, you know, when I was born in the year. So born in, you know, a village in Laos and around 1971. And, you know, my family, as you know, when the war ended for the Americans in 1973, of course, I was just a baby. But my family tried to leave in 1975 when other leaders and thousands of refugees tried to leave. But we couldn't for a number of different reasons. So, you know, my father was not a high ranking, you know, officer. He he was a soldier in the earlier part of the war, but he, he didn't have any high ranking, you know, title. So we tried to, you know, go back to live normal life. And um, it would not be until 1979 when I was already then eight years old that my family began the, the journey as the other 150,000 Hmong and nearly hmm. 1.4 million Southeast Asians who fled Southeast Asia after the uh, the war. So, yeah, long story short, we spent um, about six months in the refugee camp, Bang Vinai, which many Hmong and others too uh, experienced uh, a refugee camp in Thailand. But we were, in some ways, my uncle, like my dad's youngest brother, was already in Minnesota in 1976. He, oh. he came. Yeah, so when we came, the refugee program had changed a great deal by 1980, right? If you remember, uh, when the refugee conditions first were, you know, started, people thought it would be a temporary moment, right? We have a crisis, right. we'll solve it, we'll be done, just like other, you know, former refugee crises. But it didn't end, right? More and more people kept fleeing Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. So we were those people who came in 1980. We were part of the later waves of, you know, farmers and others who didn't, you know, have, you know, a major roles with Americans who served there, but nevertheless, you know, we were on the side of Americans during the war. And so, um, yeah, so we spent only six months in the refugee camp. My uncle had communicated back, you know, sent no letter back to my, my, uh, parents or messages through all kinds of different ways. It's amazing, right? Uh, during that time, right. we didn't have internet and phone like this, but right. they communicated with each other. So when we got to the refugee camp, my um you know with four my my four brothers and my younger sister my older sister had been married so she wasn't with us at the time but the message from my uncle in minnesota my uncle tom bang is that you know you don't stay you know you bring your children to america as soon as you can so we were only there for six months we arrived in minnesota april 13 1980 and grew huh. up in st paul and went to a public school there we spent one year in winona when my father was in a farming training program uh but then in in 80 in the early 80s about 84, 85, we were there. And then uh, we moved back to St. Paul and, you know, graduated from Johnson High School. And um, I think the first time I met Mark Anderson, the former admissions director at Gustavus, right. he, he and I have a very special relationship, right? He was at this um, recruiting event and one of our, our friend, um, Blong Lee, he had gone to, you know, the same high school. But he uh -huh. was the first Hmong to come to Gustavus, right? So he was with Mark at this, uh, you know, recruitment fair. And I talked to them and met Mark. And there's the beginning of our beautiful friendship. I yeah, ended up Mar coming to Gustavus. Is, that's a great, that's a great um, 
Yeah, Mark is legendary, of course, and, and, mm-hmm. and I, I know a little bit about it. I mean, I was aware that you had a, a special relationship with him and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm struck by, I'm struck by, by one, you, you remember the, I guess maybe it's not that surprise, but still you were young. You, you remember the, or know, the exact date when you uh, arrived in St. Paul or Minnesota. And then I had a question. Um, were you, so you're, were your parents farmers? Is, is that what they were doing in, yeah, in, um, yeah. in Laos? Yeah. Yep. My father was, what, what? you know, in the war, but uh-huh. yeah, we were just farmers. We were literally just farmers. So, um, but you know, during the war, as, as you learn about Hmong history, I mean, most people were agrarian, right? And we relied on just, you know, the land and feeding ourselves. And, and so they were just farmers. Um, they, my father probably had like maybe second grade education, right? He hmm. really, really you know, was motivated and because, you know, during the colonial era, during the French colonial era, many people who went to school and if they happen to have gone to school in France, the colonial subjects, right, they'll come back. They have all these nice posts or if they, you know, even just learn how to read and write, then they were just so revered. And so my parents, even though they didn't know how to read and write, they knew what that meant that education mm-hmm. could, uh, how valuable that was. So, yeah, so he knew how to read and write a little bit in Lao language, but um, no schooling for myself until we came to the U.S. Wow. Did, um, and then what did your, what did your dad do or did both parents work once they were in Minnesota? Yeah, so we, as I mentioned, um, my, my parents, my father, my mother was already around 38 right, when we came and with all, all of my siblings, we were born in Laos. And then my father, a couple of years older, um, they, they came and they really tried to make farming work, right? Um, the, in Minnesota had, you know, again, th- this whole idea about Hmong being farmers. And so there's a number of initiatives in Minnesota to support them. So my father was actually in that training program that I, I believe it was Hennepin County. And, and, you know, when you talked about how I remember April 13, just so you know, they're not my memory, right? Because I am a historian and I have been writing and researching. And so all the refugees, when we come, we have this little uh, immigration uh, bag that all of our documents are in there. So I, I, I'm the historian in my family. So I have that right. bag with our travel documents. So that's why I have plane tickets. I have all these different wow. things in there. Um, you have your own archive. Anyways, I do. Yeah. So that's how I, I am the, you know, I have an archive in my house and there's a story about how I ended up with that bag, but we'll talk about that another time. But yeah, so my parents, they were older, right? So they, uh, learned how to, my mom learned how to read and write a little bit. And she learned her ABCs and she learned how to read and write in Hmong um, because we used the Roman you know, alphabet and my father. So he tried to make farming work. And so he was in that training program. And that's how we eventually went to Winona. Um, or it, it was a farming project called the Hiawatha Valley Co-op. So the idea... Hmm. That church world service was partnership between church world service, the state of Minnesota, really trying to get these Hmong farmers to learn more, you know, advanced technology. So they were purchasing this 1300 acre in Homer, right? Homer, Minnesota, just a little bit north of Winona. So we lived on the farm and my father farmed with the other Hmong men, but the project failed. So then we moved back to St. Paul and I went to junior high and high school there. And then every summer we farmed, we were some of the earliest Hmong farmers market 
uh, participants in the yeah, trustees. I wondered about that. I, I prob- mm-hmm. for all I know, I saw you there even before I knew you. Was he? Um, but then, was he still um, do, doing sort of agricultural work? I mean, from St. Paul, or what, what? What happened once the once that first project failed? Yeah, that project failed, so then we came back uh, to to St. Paul, and um, and then yeah, so we started a um, seasonal farming uh, mm-hmm. business. So my mm-hmm. family rented land in Hugo, where some uncles have purchased some land, and then we went to Hastings, and so we farmed until I. It was a few years after I finished. Gustavus actually, when my father's health kind of deteriorated and then we made them stop, mm. right? But mm. that was their joy. They loved it, Greg. They, it was what they knew. And, you know, during the winter time, they were so depressed. But sure. when, you know, yeah, because they, they couldn't go out and do things. But as soon as spring came, they worked so hard. They're, they're uh, sweaty and, and all of that. But there was so much joy for them to plant, to see the crops or harvest, and we go sell them at the Minneapolis and St. Paul Farmers Markets. That was their joy. So that's what they did. Those crops just have enriched those markets. I mean, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, just people like me. I mean, what, what we've learned about cooking and food um, from, from immigrants, including Hmong immigrants at those markets, selling at those markets. Mm-hmm. What, now, a our, our, um, couple, couple of questions, I guess, to... to um, maybe help our listeners understand the, the, the Hmong history a little bit or the history of this migration. First of all, is, is Minnesota, one, is it the largest uh, uh, home to, to Hmong in the United States or, or just one of? I don't know. It's not. Actually, California, in terms of state population, California okay. has uh, had, you know, the largest Hmong population state as a state, right? Uh, but Minnesota is the second largest, you know, Hmong population. Okay. Uh, and then Wisconsin. It's been this pattern for forever. So California, oh, Minnesota, so Wisconsin, Wisconsin too. Yeah. So the Midwest actually, as a region, is bigger than anywhere else. And is that because of farming? I mean, we think of the Midwest and farming. I mean, it, it, is it is it the fact that most uh, of the Hmong who 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 resettled in the U.S. are are farmers are engaged in agrarian work? No, actually, it's not. I mean, that's a good uh-huh. question because uh, that sometimes is an assumption, right? Because of right. what we just talked about. But in fact, it is a reflection of the Minnesotans and Wisconsinites. Because mm. in the refugee camps, remember that we couldn't come until we have an American re- uh, sponsor, right? So right. refugee decisions are made at the federal level, federal international level. But once we get here, it is local communities, organizations, churches, individuals who open their homes and churches and communities to us, right? So where the Hmong people are now reflects Americans who actually uh, were willing to sponsor us initially, right? I mean, as later we become just like other immigrants, we practice chain migration, we see where things are better and we want to be with family and friends. So, so we move, but... Initially, it was wherever we could get a sponsor. And so uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin just had a lot of sponsors. It was Iowa as well, but many have moved to the Twin Cities. And so and so most most Hmong, contrary to the assumption of the stereotype, are not, or many, not most, are not farming. What are, what are, what are some of their occupations? 
Yeah. So, so Minnesota, uh, and I did want to back up a little bit. So Minnesota is, mm-hmm. you know, has second largest population, but in terms of a concentration, right? Since 2000, the Twin Cities, I mean, it's not really fair. We know that, right? Because it's two cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis, but in terms of a concentration, then the Twin Cities is the largest concentration of Hmong in the country. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I think your question about um, I lost my train of thought about what about, they're doing um, the career. Yeah, right. Yes. So yeah, so farming. Many people, you know, if you go to the farmers market now, you still see quite a few Hmong people. But but I think in the early beginning, most families, right? Initially, when we came, we were supposed to, you know, how refugee resettlement policies. You know, you have to demonstrate that you're not going to be a burden to society, and so. The, by the time my family came, the, they gave us the federal government, you know, the policy changed. So you had 18 months, right? Initially, it was 36 months for the first wave, but it changed because so many more refugees were coming. So it reduced to 18 months. Then the, you know, families are supposed to become self-sufficient. I mean, think about that. 18 months to become self-sufficient. <laughs> right. And so you don't speak in English. You don't have the formal education in this country. But the policy says you have to become self-sufficient. So most families actually could not become self-sufficient. Right. And so many families like my family, you know, my we ended up having to depend on public assistance to make ends meet. So my family was like many, many other families too, were on welfare for some time until we were able to help ourselves. So that's that's the early days, that's what happened. But then many who could work in jobs in manufacturing, manufacturing is one of the biggest area, if you look at the census data, uh, where Hmong people work and then the service sector, right? Many are oh, in the sure. service sector. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, but farming is a very small proportion of our community who actually farm for a living. That is so interesting because that is, as you say, that is the sort of assumption, if not stereotype, right? Maybe that's fed mm-hmm. by the by the by their the presence at farmers markets. But um, yeah, that's right. So when I when I think about what you just said, service industry, of course, that makes perfect sense and, and borne out by my own eyes when I when I have them open anyway. Yeah. So you are so you were the first in your family to attend college, right, Gustavus? I, I um, was not the first to attend. Oh, you were not the first. Go ahead. No, I, I have two older brothers. So my oldest brother went to UW-Stout, and then my, oh. my yeah, the brother who was just right older than me, he went to Mankato State. So, oh. yeah, so they both went to college, but I am the first Hmong, first girl, right, to first go to college. Girl, right. Yeah, and then I am the first Hmong person to graduate from Gustavus. My friend, Blondie, right. uh, was there, but he transferred out, right? He tra- he was there, I think, two years, and then he transferred. And then the year I came, another friend, um, Tong, came as well, but he transferred to the University of Minnesota. So I was the only one who stayed and graduated from Gustavus. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're glad of that. <laughs> we'll, we'll forgive the other two. We're glad you stayed. Sure. <laughs> what was it? What what was it? Um, tell us a little bit about, um, insofar as you can recall, I mean, your, your experiences at Gustavus, both both positive and, and, and negative um, or, or challenging, if you like, uh, as a I mean, as as a Hmong student where, where there are where there were no other Hmong uh, or very few, at least um, uh, on campus. Well, I, I want to say that um, 
you know, because I grew up in St. Paul, right? Mostly in St. Paul. I went to Johnson High School, very diverse, right? I have lots of Hmong friends. I have lots of other, you know, uh, groups as well. I was a very active student. I played sports. I joined clubs and I was, you know, doing all kinds of things. And so I was a very engaged student. Um, sometimes I think I'm more American than some Americans, right? When they talk <laughs> about, you know, school spirit and the high school experience, you know, I was doing everything. And it's really interesting because I graduated and then I've met uh, a few times I've met students who, who, you know, you know, one particular student, a white female student who was not in my cohort, right? The, you know, the kind of college prep cohort. Right. And uh, I met her uh, a number of years later and she said, oh, you know, we graduated the same year. Um, you know, you're the first Hmong person I know who's really motivated. I said, well, because you were <laughs> not in my cohort. <laughs> there are many of us who went to do great things. But, right. but anyway, so... I had that experience. I came from very diverse. So I was going to either say Nola or Gus Davis, right? Those are my mm. two that I was going to go. And I chose Gus Davis largely, I think, because I met Mark. And because, you know, my friend Brong was there too. And uh, I, I actually applied early, right? I did the early a- application. And uh, Mark was just really phenomenal. And then um, I chose Gus Davis uh, because, you know, most of Hmong, friends of mine, right, women friends who um, they went to the University of Minnesota or other places that were closer. And I wanted to be away from home, but not too far away because I didn't really have all the financial resources to fly back and forth somewhere else. Right. And so I guess Davis was far enough for me and um, my parents, you know, they didn't speak in English, but they really value the education, right? So um, my father and my mother supported me doing all these extracurricular activities, um, as long as I was a good student too, right? So anyways, long story short, they, like other American family or parents, they drove me to Gustavus. I moved in. I lived in, um, no, is it the, the dorm on the north side? Was it Norelius? Oh, Norelius, sure. Is it the, the more reputation of party dorm, right? I think or, or so. Or maybe not from you. Okay. So I was <laughs> placed there and my first semester and I was very unhappy. My roommate uh-huh. and I just had really different music tastes. <laughs> and oh. I, and then the girls, you know, the young women on my, my floor, right? I like to take eight o'clock classes. Okay, I, I'm, wow. we farmed, I wake up early and that's when I feel the most productive and alert and, and they like to sit and chat in the hallway till three in the morning. I, I couldn't <laughs> make it work. And my, you know, my roommate, you know, I, I feel bad all this time for abandoning her because eventually she dropped out. Right. But wow. I moved uh, ha- through halfway through the semester. I think maybe it was, I went to Mark. Uh, I think I remember just telling him how unhappy I was and that was a wrong place for me. And then, you know, uh, housing made it happen. And there happened to be a, is Wastron has been torn down, right? I think so. Yeah. So, the you know, the dorm, but, you know, so there's six little you know, tiny rooms, but we share common right. space. So I yeah. was able to move into that area where I loved having five other roommates, but I also really liked my own tiny little five by eight room. And, right. and yeah, in the, the women in that little, you know, area, 
they were all very studious. Not that we were boring, right? They were very studious, they were very serious, and they, they didn't like to drink and stay up in the hallway <laughs> all night. So I found a perfect place for me to thrive. So That's great. I yeah, can totally yeah. relate. My, um, I, I went to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and so I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, just like you, I wanted to be away from home, but not too far. Uh, so it was about 75 miles away. But my first semester, I had a roommate. It was okay. And then, boy, but not, not great. And then uh, I... I managed to convince my parents to pay for a single room I could have my, mm-hmm. my second semester. What a difference that 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 made. Um, yeah. but I can completely relate if you how that, you know, that can color the way you feel about the institution. Right. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're not able to sort of function the way you, you the way you best function in your case, eight o'clock. I'm the same way. I love getting up early. I work best early in the morning. So we would have been mm-hmm. a good match. Uh, I work the shift too, but I just like to get up early and, yeah. you know, I, I joke about, it. I, I can study till midnight and I'll get up at six o'clock. And, um, it's just that I, I, I wasn't a boring person, but I really felt like college was a, it was a privilege for me to be there and I wanted sure. to succeed and I, I wanted to do it, do it well. You know, I didn't want to just pass right. and, you know, get it, you know, be done with and get a BA. That was a big deal then. Right. I mean, it still right. is, but, but I didn't want to just go through the motion. I just wanted to, you know, do everything and enjoy it. And it was a privilege. That's how I treated yeah, you, it. You got, you got, um, I talked to my students about the difference between an education and a degree and you were, you mm-hmm. were there for an education in all, in all senses of that word. What drew you to poli sci and then and then French as as majors? Mm-hmm. So in in school, you, you know, I I didn't know anybody right when I was in junior high. I didn't know anybody who had a PhD, but for some strange reason, I read about Elizabeth Blackwell, right, the first woman doctor, and I tried oh, yeah. to think, wow. yeah, think about maybe become a doctor, right, because that's what parents, especially stereotypically, a lot of Asian parents try to push their kids to, you know, being doctors, right, so I right. actually thought I wanted to do that, but I think it was seventh or eighth grade where we had to dissect a little uh, frog or something like that. Oh, and yes, I, said, I had, I had the same experience. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my science teacher, Mr. Martin, you know, he was also the, you know, softball coach. So he said, you know, you're tough. You can do this. But I'm just like, you know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so I didn't like it. And I knew I couldn't do something like that. But I love civics. Right. I love civics. I just totally love that. And that was my favorite subject in high school. I loved history. I loved, you know, all the things about politics and society. Those were things that I really enjoyed. And so I I was very sure, you know, by maybe 10th grade, what I wanted to major in college. There was a moment in time where I, I thought I would go to law school, right? Mm-hmm. So I that's what I thought I would do. And but, poli sci um, would be a good preparation for that. Yeah, actually. exactly, exactly. And then I started learning French when I was in ninth grade, and I totally love it. I think it was because you know, you know how colonized societies are sometimes, right? Even though people want colonialism to end, once it ends, then the colonized society also kind of perpetuates some of the practices of the colonizers. So back to, yeah, back to my parents, my dad's love of education and 
the, the revering of individuals who had a French education, right? So I started learning French in ninth grade. I loved it. And because I really enjoy history and politics and political history, and I was just really intrigued by these, you know, great minds who continue to shape our societies, right? And why do we keep studying about all these, you know, theologians and philosophers? And um, so I really enjoy that kind of learning. Uh, but it was like the summer after I finished high school, I knew I wanted to major in political science. So it was all in my application. But then I received an award, um, which included getting a, um, a job, a summer job at the city of St. Paul city attorney's office. So oh. it was a paid job. I was paid $7 an hour. That was a lot of oh money gosh. for me at that time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so that whole summer I was, um, Jane McCormick was the city attorney at that time. And I was shadowing and part of it was, it was mentoring and shadowing, right? I was paid to do the work, but I got to sit in and watch people's arraignments and that's met great. with her weekly and to see if that's what I wanted to do. And after the summer was over, I said, no, thank you. No law school for me. <laughs> um, I didn't want to represent guilty people. That's what I told myself. So <laughs> I, yeah, so I decided, you know, I still want to major in political science. Um, but when I got to college, you know, I really loved French too. So I really was much more focused on, you know, international relations and, um, at one point, I thought that maybe when I finished college, I would go to the join the Peace Corps or at one point in time in life would work for the UN or something like that. Um, so that's what I did. And I, I thought French was, you know, a good language to be able to speak and do research. And um, and then I came and Gustavus was, you know, just just a very supportive place. And I, I think also because I wanted to get the most out of it, right? I, my parents right. didn't have much money, right? So right, I was you were number motivated. One. Yeah, right. I was not number one in my school. So that's why I keep telling young people, you don't have to be valedictorian to succeed, but you Absolutely do have to. Not. Yeah, but you do have to have a passion for something, and so. Right. In the courses I had, you know, Ron, the people that my professors, you know, Ron Christensen and Don Ostrom. Don Ostrom, yeah. And they were just really amazing people. And um, I just had good friends, too. Um, I, I guess Davis, who, who are also poli-sci majors, who we, you know, one of my best friends, you know, Chris Hines, she did eventually go to law school. But, you know, I... I just wanted to embrace it all, Greg. I, you know, I hear my parents talk about how when they grew up, only the very, very rich people's kids get to even learn how to read and write. And boy, here I was, you know, it's all there for me and nobody's yeah. telling me I can't have it. So they didn't have much yeah. money. I was not number one, but I was a pretty decent student, right? And so I did well. I knew how to navigate. So I was thinking, I was doing the math, right? Wow. What for this $80,000 education, I'm paying $11,000. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. Of, yeah. Yeah. And most of that was because I went abroad for a whole year, right? And there's extra money. Oh, yeah, you, went to, you went to, mm -hmm. uh, to France, right? Your junior. Yeah. You know, let me, let me ask you something thinking, thinking about, um, cause I'm thinking you as a poli sci major as the, as, um, not the first Hmong student at Gustavus, but the, you know, 
the first to stay and graduate. I mean, there must have been very little reflection of Hmong history and culture in the, if, if maybe none in the, in the curriculum and the teaching, I would think. Um, what was that like? And is, is that partly why you co-founded the uh, Asian American Club as a, as a Gustavus student? Yeah, I mean, that's a terrific question because there was nothing reflective of, you know, people who look like me, whose history, right? And so, as I mentioned, I, I went to St. Paul Public School. So my high school, we had an Asian club, and so we have all kinds mm -hmm. of cultural events. So this is my philosophy, that even though I was very young, um, when I was growing up, you know, we, the children, learned how to speak English first, right? So we were already right. helping our parents. We were their voice. We were their interpreters. So I was, as a, I was the president of the Asian club in high school, right? So I was already giving presentations at churches and people, community groups who wanted to learn more. But I learned all of these things outside of class. But we have a lot of people, you know, who lived in St. Paul. So I felt like I was knowledgeable. And then when I came to Gustavus, I, those are things just I learned on my own. It wasn't in the curriculum, but at Gustavus, and I don't want to take credit for everything. There was a group of us. Um, there's two two Vietnamese uh, students. Uh, I think Vo, uh, Vaughn, no Vaughn, and another um, Trin is his last name. So there was a few of us who were Asian students. There's quite a few, you know, ad Korean adoptees too. But it was interesting with quite a few of the Korean adoptees. They we were all physically Asian, right? But but their yes. lived experiences were very different. Uh, being right. adopted, they're mostly from white families and mostly not from the Twin Cities. And they're wonderful, but many of them, when we were recruiting to wanting to start this cultural club, um, you know, I remember clearly, you know, one of the, uh, he's a friend, right? He's um, a male uh, Korean adoptee. He told me, well, I don't know anything about Korean culture, so I, I, I don't want to be involved, right? And and that's okay. I said, no, that's fine. It's not a problem. But there were not just Asian students who started clubs. We have friends who were uh, white and, you know, other, you know, racial backgrounds who, who, who were part of the founding of the Asian Cultural Club at Gustavus. So I thought, you know, the few of us uh, really wanted to if we didn't see it, that's my philosophy. If you don't, if you want to have something and it doesn't exist, if you're going to complain about it or you're going to highlight it or point it out, then you must be willing to do something about it. Um, and so that was our, our philosophy. So we, we, we talked to administrator again, back to people like Mark and it's, oh, what do you need? And so that's what we did. And, and then we were able to get some of the international students who were of Asian descent, right? And so it just became a, a, a place where we felt like we didn't want to just assimilate into the Gustavus right. culture, but that we wanted right. to also shape parts of the Gustavus yes. experience for ourselves. Yeah, that's so important. Um, we can come back to that when we talk a little bit about later about mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. The, I, I, remember the, I remember the club. I remember... Um, I, I, you know, how, how active it was. And I, I, in preparing for this podcast, I came across, um, a quote from you in the weekly, I think it was in, yeah, it was in 1993. There, there'd been a forum, uh, about 
and I guess about some racism on campus. Um, and you were quoted as saying, um, you don't know how difficult it is to be a minority student here, but you also said in the same breath, something you just said a minute ago, which is, you know, there isn't, there isn't just Asian or Asian American. There's a whole, there's a whole mess of diversity. And I gather that's a theme even in your, your, um, work on, on, on Hmong, people, culture, and history that, you know, there's this tendency to kind of lump all Hmong people together, but there's a great deal of diversity and, and variety. And maybe we, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Say a little bit about the, the you know, the, the Hmong are one of many immigrant groups, obviously, to the U.S. and to um, Minnesota. But what's what, what do the Hmong have as, as an immigrant group or an ethnic group immigrating to the U.S. in, in common with other uh, groups and also not in common with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the very important things to point out is that, you know, the, the way in which people migrate, right? We were refugees. And so obviously that's a very different experience than, you know, maybe immigrants who prepare to leave, they plan, they right. get their green card and then they leave and they're, you know, it's a different path. But with refugee status, you know, people are fleeing for their lives. They're, you know, and often it's it's either you you stay and, um, you know, your your life is endangered in in ways that propel you to just leave, even though you don't really know where you're going and you have no frame of reference about what life in the U.S. or anywhere else would be like. Um, that's our collective experience, right? For for Hmong. Um, so we're, but we're not that unique, right? You know, other refugees who have come to Minnesota, Somalis, Vietnamese, Lao, Cambodians, others have similar experiences. What is, I think, um, unique or different about Hmong is precisely, you know, this story of how we as a group, you know, we, we, there's a lot of Hmong people who call themselves Hmong that we're called different names by different state actors who, depending on what country we live in, but those of us who call ourselves Hmong, there's still millions in China, you know, in Vietnam and then in Laos. But those of us who came to the United States are very specifically from Laos and because of the war and because of our, you know, work with, you know, U.S military in Laos. So that's a very different kind of experience that Hmong have held on to. If yes. we take away the war, right? We take away the war, there will be no Hmong people in the United States. Hmm. Right? We were not migrating. Yes, and it's you, you're reminding me too. We should we should talk a little bit about it. I mean there, there there's there's an earlier diaspora that people may not be aware. I mean, the Hmong, Hmong sort of, correct me if I'm wrong, begin in southern China and then are forced mm -hmm. out of there. Talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah. So in what we know about Hmong origin, right, from, I mean, there's all kinds of theories about Hmong people being in from all kinds of other places. But from what we have evidence for, Hmong origin originated from, you know, China, right? And now in southern China in particular, where several million still live. Um, and it was really in the late mid to late 1800s as as many many chinese right were leaving for uh for the united states for other places in southeast asia also as you see in malaysia and other places that have become so heavily chinese dominated we were part of i think some of those you know 
you know, experiences too. So you begin to have um, some push factors, right? War and, you know, with the, the larger Hung Chinese, you know, encroaching more and more to areas in the southern part where ethnic minorities like the Hmong lived, and then people have to keep fleeing further and further away. So long story short, but it was really in the late uh, 1800s that more uh, a more sizable number of Hmong migrated to, you know, northern Vietnam and then eventually to northern Laos. So that's our or- origin. It's just mostly, you know, southern China as many other Asian groups as well. So we are not indigenous in the sense that when you talk about indigenous groups in those areas, we're actually one of the newcomers in, in Northern right. Laos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which a lot, I, mean, I think a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that until I, um, in fact, until I started um, thinking more about Hmong people as more Hmong students came to Gustavus. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I thought that exhibit that you were involved in at the Minnesota History Center was just fantastic. I learned a lot from that as well. But yeah, I think a lot of people think, oh, Hmong, Laos, that's where they start, but that's not the case. And it's also not mm-hmm. the case as you're, you're also saying that, I mean, even now, um, Hmong I mean, the Hmong diaspora is, is global, right? It's not just the yes. U.S. It's, it, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and we get into this later, your work on uh, uh, Southeast Asian migrants in, in, in the global South. Maybe we can talk about mm-hmm. that in a bit too. But so go ahead. You were saying something it sounded like. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just agreeing. <laughs> okay. The, um, so the other thing about Hmong, again, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're, um, you know, we think of people, other immigrant groups, um, at least many other immigrant groups like the Irish, let's say, to this country, uh, coming from a nation. That, I mean, the Hmong are, 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 are an ethnic group, right? There's not, there's not yes. a Hmong, never has been a Hmong nation. Is that correct? Not in the sense that we know nation states, no. Okay, right. And how has that how has that been important if it has been in in, in Hmong history? That mm-hmm. fact. Yeah, it, it is so phenomenal how nation building has been a very important core, you know, value that Hmong people hold, right? But there had never been a nation state that's called mm. Hmong country anywhere. But it is really tied to a very strong ethnic identity. Identity, um, yeah. Yeah, mm. based on a very strong um, social, cultural system of how we relate to each other. So what's interesting is that we've never had a nation, but no matter where we exist, those ethnic ties are so strong. And so... I think it's precisely when, when you and I had a conversation about, about last names, right? Vang is a very common last name, uh, Yang too, but Yang is also, you know, a Chinese last name, Korean and others as well. But Vang and some of the Hmong last names, those are our clan names. So the clans are uh, how our social structure is and it's how we are born into a clan. It, is how we are unified and is also how we're divided, right? So mm-hmm. you're born into a clan, you can be adopted into a clan, which is just our last name. So the 18 or so last name, that defines who we are as a ethnic group. So no matter where I am traveling to, whether I'm sitting in, 
you know, the mountains in northern Vietnam, or I'm having coffee with a Hmong woman in Argentina, or sitting in French Guiana with, you know, there's that that ethnic tie that people just treat each other as, you know, family. And is this that's that's all fascinating to me? Is this related to to your? Um, I think it's it's ongoing. Your your ongoing work on on Southeast Asian identity in the global South. Yes, because, you know, we know a lot about refugee resettlement in the global north, right, in North America and also Europe. Um, but we there were small populations that were sent to the global south in, in South America. And we don't know much about what happened to them because there's so such small populations. So since 2015, I, you know, I have been conducting research in, in French Guiana, in Argentina. So I'm actually in the writing stage of um, a new um, monograph on identity and belonging in the global south. So really looking at the refugees um, who were sent to about 266 families that were from Laos that were sent to Argentina, including 25 Hmong, and then the rest were ethnic Lao families. And then I studied the 1,000 you know Hmong individuals who were sent to French Guiana, and but now they have you know three villages that were very much like village temperature climate wise, like in Southeast Asia. So they have you know rebuilt their lives, but they live in more self-contained villages. So even little children, they all go to school. They're, you know, it's a French department, so they all speak uh, French, but they also all speak Hmong. Um, so That's it's very amazing. different context. And then the small number of families in Argentina, boy, you know, the original refugees is the number is decreasing every every moment as we speak with the elders, like my parents' generation. And then there are, you know, Argentina-born, you know, Hmong who speak no Hmong. <laughs> So I need interpreters right. to speak with them. So that is yeah, so it's fascinating. Really interesting. And I'm just curious how much, um, I mean, how much interaction, whether it's, I don't mean necessarily in, in person, obviously, but is there a, a, between Hmong and let's say a place like Argentina and, and St. Paul, or, or are they completely sort of unknown to one another? Well, I think just the, the explosion of social media, right, that has enabled um, people to, you know, to connect with more people across the globe. And even if they don't know people personally, social media makes people think, right, or feel that they know what's going on in other parts of the world, yes. uh, even if they've never been there. So I know that, yeah. so, so the families who went to Argentina, this is the saddest part. And that's why my book is called The Sorrow of Displacement. Um, it is precisely I, through interviews and archival research, I, I uh, found that even some of the families who agreed to go to Argentina, when the Argentine government came to interview them in 1979, 1980, they actually say, you're going to South America. And this is summarizing, you know, one, one person's reflection, but, you know, his parents thought that they were going to the southern part of America, right? Oh. United States. So they thought they were going to the same country as just North and South America. Oh. They get to South America, to Argentina, and they realize, oh, we're not in America. 
and and it's things like that that is so heart wrenching. And then those who are, have sure. families in the U.S. have already been um, before nine eleven, right? Before nine eleven, many of them right. were sponsored their families um, to the United States. So if people have immediate family members, they have all come to the U.S. The ones who are there now are stuck there. That's why they're still oh. there. That is heart heart wrenching, and mm-hmm. wow, what a what a powerful title for uh, the sorrow of displacement for your for your forthcoming book. I have to say, I had never thought about I'm sure most Hmong people in connection with Argentina or, or, or French Guinea. I, I mean, can no no way never even occurred to me um, that. And you also remind us that you so really a lot of your work is is based on oral history, right? Interviews. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, with regard to the your, to your work on Hmong pilots, uh, which again, I mean, for me, when I think of Hmong, one of the things I think about, of course, is the war and then the, the CIA's secret war, even in the, in the 1950s and Hmong, Hmong airmen. Um, I guess they were they all men. I assume they were all mm-hmm. uh, yes. men um, trained by the CIA and, and, and the Air Force. Well, you've written you've written two two books, right? On yes. On uh, one is an oral history of of, of the uh, fighter pilots, and then this other book that I mentioned in the intro, uh, which I've not read, which which I want to read, sounds fantastic. Uh, about um, uh, the the pilot who was shot down in, in what the mid early seventies and held as a prisoner. But tell us a little bit about that work. What what are some of the main themes in those uh, books? Yeah. So the reason I, um, you know, you're a historian, so you know, I don't have to tell people. But one of the um, when we're researching and trying to tell stories. You know, often we go to the archives, right? right? And but when you go to the archives, um, some of the people that I want to understand, I want to learn from, and whose stories I think need to be told as well, those stories are not yes. in the archives, right? That's right. So that's why my research, but or history is such a integral part of all my research because I love archives generally too. I do. And, you know, I love talking to dead people, meaning that I love to read letters. I love to, you know, read all these other things that people love and newspaper clippings and all these things, you know, I call them dead people, but, um, but you know what I mean? It's wonderful. Right. And I can spend hours and hours in the archives, but yes. you know, when I was working on my um, doctoral uh, research, I went through all of these case files, the refugee case files that are actually in the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. And I looked at the the official documents, right? Uh, Case records of people resettling when they came, the paperwork goes to the International Institute of Minnesota, and then eventually they get placed at the IHRC. And I'm, I'm reading through these archival materials and there's notes from the case workers, right, who talk about how mm. these people are not being compliant. They really should work two jobs because they have this many children and they cannot be self-sufficient in six months if they don't do X, Y, and Z. Or or they would describe, you know, a a, a mother who seems to be dazed off, right? She's not paying attention. She's just not getting it. Her English hasn't improved at all. 
So I hear the voices of the people who are in the business of kind of processing refugees, right? Right. But I don't. But I don't hear the voices of the people who are being processed. I, yes. I wonder what that woman who's dazing off. Why is she not paying attention, right? And so, or history becomes that place where I feel. Like I'm also contributing. Like I wasn't a historian first, right? I was poli sci, and eventually I became a historian. And I just took it upon myself that I all of my research projects are also a, a project of you know gathering or, or building my own personal archive of the right. research. There have been people I've interviewed who are now you know uh, who have died, so no one's going to be able to interview them. And so, long story short, about the pilot projects, I, I you know I'm a Vietnam War historian, so I'm very very you know familiar with this this you know area. But the Hmong Airmen, it's a story that very few people have heard about, right? And in the Hmong community. People know, right? People know we have a few ace pilots who became this kind of symbolic representation of the, you know, the the sacrifices that our people made during the war, um, such as Li Lu is the most famous, right? Um, so you grew up, you kind of heard these stories, but but no one, even the Hmong military individuals themselves that I was interviewing, many, many of them, people can tell you uh, what they did at a particular time and place, but very few could tell you this larger political and social transformations that were occurring. And so they can tell you the micro level experiences, but that larger, you know, historical context, very few people could. So, So part of all of my work is about, I'm very interested as I have always been about the great leaders of great nations and the decisions they made that changed the world. But I'm also very interested in the people who we think don't have any power, but but they actually exercise a lot of agency, right? The wars are yes. decided in northern Laos. They're decided in Washington, D.C., but they happen in my village. <laughs> so the elders have to make decisions. And then when the war ended, they they didn't have to come, right? They could have just stayed and, and faced whatever consequences, but they, they dragged their children like us, right, to leave yes. in the the motivation they have, the trust, the faith of not knowing exactly where you're going, but have this idea about any place is better than here right now and to risk that. Those are the stories that I wanted to capture in my lifetime. When I was younger, I like I told you earlier, I was interested in French political thought and you know European, you know, all, yeah, these. all Western, right? Exactly, Western civilization. That because that's what we learned. That's what we had access to, and those are the only great things that we we learned about. So of course, as a young person, that's what I thought I needed to know too, and that if I was going to thrive, I needed to know all that, which I think is really wonderful that I went that route. And then now I have shifted to really much more global work and so but yeah so oral history is very important to me and it's so profound that i now may have one of the biggest oral history collections of veterans and ordinary people when i say that we're all ordinary in our own ways but i'm talking about women who who left their their villages to go and join this nursing program that the u.s agency for international development you know, had in Northern Laos, changing gender relations. So all of these things that until you really dig 
dig deep into these lived experiences that don't exist in the archive, you can't tell these stories. You don't know, so right? I, that history's yeah, lost. Yep. So no that's longer, thanks joy. to you. And, you, and I, I want to. Yeah, you're at, you answered one of my one of the questions I was thinking about, which is you 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 must have a huge archive. Are you are you depositing these interviews anywhere, or are they just with you for now? Or? They're with me for now in three different you know storage yeah. places. I I get really nervous. <laughs> I have one experience in graduate school where I lost an interview, so oh, I had no. to go back because I didn't have time to save it. So I had to go back and ask the person, and then he was so kind. I re-interviewed him, oh, but then yeah. but then there's something that is just special about that first interview. I that, can imagine. You know, yeah. So now it's saved in three different areas and I have a storage at the university for all my, you know, research files. I do plan at some point in time, if I ever do myself a favor to take more time off. And when I'm on sabbatical, I want to write another mm. book. So mm -hmm. um, I do plan to archive these and I, I transcribed a lot of them. Uh, some are actually videotaped too, not just audio. So, oh, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So I want to, um, I will give them to some archive, but I want it to be in a place where it's accessible to to people. I don't want somebody just to right. hold my my materials and then no one can go. Yeah, in. that would be a shame. You, I mean, boy, this work is so interesting because. Um, obviously, you're much more familiar with the, the historiography of the Vietnam War than I am. I don't teach a course on that. But just a little I know, I mean, you're really, um, as you mentioned, you, we have this idea of the, the decisions coming out of Washington. But no, there are other centers of decision making by people in power, but then also ordinary people on the ground and not just in, in Vietnam itself, but Hmong people as well, um, exercising agency and affecting outcomes um during during that long long and awful war what mm -hmm. what were these pilots i mean how were these pilots recruited by the sea i mean were they were they sort of recruited from villages off the farm or were they more uh more elite uh Hmong? yeah that's a um you know this was something where because of um all the stereotypes or all the characterizations of Hmong people that own, that have been available to Westerners, right? At that time was that right. we were primitive, we were uneducated, we didn't know how to read and write. But this program was very much, it wasn't just for Hmong, right? It was a program to train local, you know, meaning Lao and other American allies or collaborators, how to, you know, fly these aircraft so that they can provide air support. And especially because in, in Laos, the U.S. wasn't supposed to be there, right? And so um, right. American pilots yes. bombed <laughs> the area for, for the course of the war, but they were high up, right? And so they, these Hmong pilots were part of this water pump um, secret operation that the CIA orchestrated in collaboration with General Vang Pao, you know, the Hmong general who was you know, a part of the Royal Law Army, but he worked directly with the CIA too. So very long story short, uh, you know, they they needed, you know, the, the Hmong soldiers who were on the ground, they needed close air support. And a lot of American planes, you know, they flew very high up, they dropped bombs, they did massive damage, but you, they didn't always get the enemy. So it was these T-28 pilots that, you know, became 
the kind of legendary in terms of supporting yes. ground troops. And so, yeah, so the Hmong who were uh, recruited to train, they were not the uneducated farmer. <laughs> they were actually the elite of the time. So, yes, many of them mostly have like maybe high school, no, middle school education. But at that time, okay. that was the highest. And some of them were literate in French or, you know, and or Lao. So eventually they all learned English. But they were not, you know, again, the they were the elite of the time, right? They were educated right. and with quote, air quote, educated. Of course, you know, they didn't have college degrees, but um, that's that's the group of men who were, you know, 32 graduated, 32 Hmong men graduated from the program. And they uh, three, you know, were uh, they flew helicopters were, and then a couple others, um, other air, transport aircraft. But the ones who were T-28 qualified, you know, they, they flew and, and sometimes they, were, they fly so close to the ground and these older aircraft, too, that and the topography yes. and the, the, you know, Laos is so foggy at moments where you're flying. It's clear before you know it, it's like completely, you know, cloudy. So aircraft malfunction, you know, accidents have claim, you know, many people's lives in addition to being in, you know, fire. But um, yeah, about half of them were killed in action. So that's well, yeah, a pretty... that's captured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I was going to say that's captured in the in the title of your oral histories of the Pies, yes. which I think is the, the book is fly, what fly until you die. Fly until uh, you die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. The um, now what briefly? What about um the the one pilot you you've done the most? The, your most recent book is is about him, Pao Pao Yang. What is his story? So he was shot down and then uh, imprisoned by. Was he imprisoned by the um? The communists in Laos, or mm-hmm. well, he—I mean—he's in the larger book about the Hmong pilots too. And so, you know, as a scholar, you know, the book came out from Oxford University in 2019, and I, you know, it's it's really special for me, right? Um, but when I interviewed these men, and they were not just Hmong, right? The book is about the Hmong pilots, and then also it's about the Amer- the CIA, the, you know, Bill Lair, the CIA operative who orchestrated this project and from the beginning. I interviewed him before he died, and I spent a okay. weekend with him in Texas. Wow. And there are other intelligence officers who tra- and the uh, instructor pilots who trained the Hmong. So I interviewed those who were still alive. So I, that's why I travel all over the country to, to interview them. But um, Powell's story is one of the Hmong, you know, surviving pilot stories, but everyone's story is compelling. Everyone's story is heart-wrenching. Everyone's story is worthwhile. I also included some of the widows of the pilots who were killed in action, but Powell's story is just so, so, um, you know, (sighs) profound in the way that he was shut down and everybody thought he died. He had a wife and a a baby and everybody thought he died, right? Because he couldn't be rescued. And so Mm -hmm. the, his, pilot friends at that particular moment saw the enemy dragged him because his, you know, he, he parachuted, he landed and the enemy surrounded him. So they thought he died. Right. And then long story short, he was captured and he was you know, taken to a prison camp near the Lao Vietnamese border. But when the war ended, when, when, you know, POWs were returned, if they were returned, um, Pao didn't come back. Right. Pao didn't mm-hmm. come back. And so 
um, everybody thought he died in Amon culture. Once somebody dies and after you do the f official funeral and then you have another event to free their soul, right? You release their soul so that you, you give them permission to go and be reincarnated, okay? So Paul, didn't, he didn't come back. So his family had done all the ceremonies for him already. And they, when the country fell, they left, right? His parents and wife and child left. And then um, he was imprisoned and then he, until 1976, and then eventually he was, you know, not, he was still under surveillance, but but he was allowed to go to work. And his, he and these former prisoners, they were considered, because they're pilots and they inflicted so much um, harm to the enemy, they were considered the highest crime. So he he was there for until 76, and then when he was eventually released and allowed to freaking you know, the villagers and eat and, I don't know, eventually uh, network with other Hmong people, and then he, he escaped. But the tragedy hmm. of this story is that, you know, he his wife left. She thought he died. She remarries, hmm. comes to America. Hmm. And then he... When he got out of prison, he was just before he escaped. He met a you know a young woman whose father knew Pao, and I think sometimes they don't always say this to me in the in the interviews, but I think that the parent was trying to save their daughter, right? So sure. Pao married her, and they escaped, and then they get to the United States, and the the he and his first wife had never had closure right because they both remarried and right. and so it's one of the most I, I call it kind of like you live parallel lives right you you right you're there, but you, you can never i mean there's never been closure and they can't have closure I, I can't of, i can't i mean even even as i try i really can't imagine mm -hmm. what that would be yeah, like, so that's I'm why I'm picturing this as a movie too. I mean, it could, it could <laughs> hang on to the, hang on, write a script. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. Seriously. Wow, that's a power. That's a powerful. And he's still living. Yep, yep, he's still living. And here I am. I've been researching about the book, and I went to stay. You know, three separate longer interviews with him, and I stayed at his house just to get to know him and and his second wife and their children and just kind of really understand how they have made sense of their lives. I interview his first wife. And so the book mm. has become, you know, a, a very, if he could write this book, he would himself, but because he can't. And I, here I am the historian writing his book. So as you will see in the book, when I finished, I went back and read every word to him after my many interviews oh. and, uh, telephone calls and just the formal interview and the, the kind of informal conversations. Um, I went back and I read every word to him to make sure it was what he wanted. Um, and, you know, because I write some historical contacts and a little bit analysis here and there too, I want to make sure he was okay. And some things are not beautiful. There's very critical things right. in the book and sad parts and family dynamics and hurt and all these different things too. And so when I finished it, I read it to him and then I decided to, you know, give him kind of co-authorship. Um, so it's with Pao oh. Yang. That's how I ended up with the Bible. That's great. That's powerful. You know, this also reminds me, I want, I want to say a little bit about women, your work on Hmong women. But before that, it, this reminds me, I mean, what, what is it like to be um, working as an academic, but also as a kind of insider? I mean, is that, do you, do you feel a tension when you're, when you're doing that? 
Yeah, a, a lot, right? Because um, I think that the biggest, I don't know if it's a challenge, but I think there is this, for all of us as scholars, right? You, you know, people want you to have uh, objectivity right? and you're, you're supposed to be not emotional with these things and we're supposed to be objective and just tell it like it is or exactly um, right but 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 we're human beings right and especially this kind of work that i'm doing yes reading a letter in the archive is different right it's important too but hearing somebody reflect about the day their son was killed and, and the news came to them, right? Or a brother 45 years later telling the story about running to the airfield and seeing his brother's head hanging down for and speaking as though it's mm. it just happened, like he's seen it right now, describing it to me. They're very emotionally charged yes. interviews. And I think the hardest mm. part is that if I were not a insider, right? Meaning I, I've, I've never been a pilot. That's a fact. I've never been a military person. That's a fact too. But when you are listening to people's journeys, their life stories, and the very fact that although I haven't been those identities, my family also were parts of that larger story, right? So, so yes. there's stories about escape. There's stories about the refugee camp. There's stories about the challenges of rebuilding their lives in America. They're not just their story. They're part of my story too, and Hmong people's stories exactly. and immigrant stories. So when I'm listening to some of these stories and I have to take care of myself, right? I know that if an outsider interviewing, asking the same questions and maybe hearing the same stories, I think as human beings, if you, when someone is in pain and they're suffering, if you don't feel any empathy or if you don't, you don't have to feel exactly the way they do, but if you don't feel their pain, then you, I think you're not human, right? But when right. your story is so intimately tied to some of these stories and the burden on you to tell these stories, in a way that they can live and they can be important because as we know, right, the, the whose story matters are the stories that are documented. And that's if right. it's not documented, then it's almost as if people didn't live, didn't exist. That's 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 so well said. And also, I mean, you know, I'm picking up on your point about empathy. I think even even, you know, as an outsider, uh, any, let's put it to any, hist any good historian needs to have empathy. And, yes. and, and be be able to empathize with uh, their subjects, even even if they're even if they're also repelled sometimes by mm -hmm. their by their subjects. Um, wow, I, I could keep going on about that, but that, let's 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 focus on women. That that is so interesting because that's another stereotype, right? I would think the mm -hmm. the submissive. Um, Hmong woman, but your your um, work has sort of <laughs> demolished that that um, that myth. Um, talk a little bit about that, if you would, please. Yeah. So the idea for the claiming place edited volume came from right. you know a number of us just you know when you look at the literature, it is very much a kind of a deficit base, right? That people only like to study problems and it's almost always writing about these marginalized groups as though they're, they're just problems to be fixed and that yeah, they don't have point. any agency. Yeah, and so um, our book does not dismiss that, right? We, we don't say that doesn't exist, but we're saying that let's kind of unpack this and look at how Hmong's social structure, right? Despite the fact that 
that the dominant narrative is that Hmong culture is patriarchal. Women don't have any power. Women don't have decision making. But on the contrary, there are specific elements of Hmong cultural practices that are, in, in fact, established to protect women, right? And women are the ties to the ways in which people relate to each other in our very important clan system. And when we think about wartime, right, women's lives when, you know, would change completely where so many men, yes. fathers, sons went to war, like in all societies, right? It's not That's just right, one. exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Men went to, well, men went to war. Women have to do their job and all the work that their husbands or fathers did. So their lives were changed as well. So part of what we wanted to do is to kind of um, unpack that and, and tell a more complicated story than just the ones that say, oh, Hmong refugees, poor Hmong women, they don't have any rights, they can't decide for themselves. We didn't want to just continue to perpetuate that. We acknowledge it, but then how do you explain the fact that some of the most successful Hmong people in the United States happen to be women? <laughs> some yes, of the and you were one of them. Some of the pioneers, right? Women, we have among women who's a NASA engineer. We have CEOs and all these. But for those of us who actually have done, you know, well in our own careers, and we really talk about family, our culture, and the foundation that we have. And those are not deficit; they're strengths and they're assets that help to their cultural capitals, right? That that you, yes. yeah, it, it's part of. You know, that's why when we finish our degrees, you know, like 400 people came to my graduation and I invited maybe three of them. Everybody <laughs> else is my, my parents and my brothers. <laughs> and my, so so it's that communal. And so whether it's, you know, it, I mean, it is really important to to understand that, you know, we have to tell multiple stories. There are so many different right. sides to the story. And we That's all may right. be in the same place at the same time, but you and I know, right? If we, we, we will interpret a singular event so differently depending That's on right. our role. So that's right. what gives me joy about this work. It's, uh, it's all great, great stuff. Um, and I think I think the point about um, not approaching it from a, a deficit based framework is incredibly important. Um, I'm thinking about also, you know, with with work done on um, the history of slavery in, in this exactly. country and, you know, the mm -hmm. way you can, you could, you could say, well, they're, they're either enslaved people are either simply victims or they were heroic resistors or, you know, how about some complexity mm -hmm. <laughs> in between those two, two extremes and the way you, in the way you frame um, family uh, as, as quote unquote cultural capital, just, just, just super, super important. Mm -hmm. We're, out of time, I want to keep going so badly, but we can't. Um, we're up against the clock here. But in before before we we say goodbye, I wonder if you could reflect a bit on um, on what it is about Gustavus that has uh, equipped you, stayed with you uh, over the years. In other words, to kind of ma make a case for Gustavus. Yeah, I I feel like I'm. You know, when I was a student at Gustavus, this is how I approach everything. You know, I, as we mentioned earlier, I was involved in so many different things. Even I was on judicial board, right? And, you know, looking at all my peers, the crazy things they were doing. And um, I think Gustavus was um, very, I thought that was 
I didn't know exactly how it all came together. And maybe sometimes, you know, I'm a little old fashioned that I think things work out exactly the way they're supposed to work out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not so much about my good planning, but it's that that's kind of meant to be for me to be in those spaces at those particular moments so that I can, you know, have a certain kind of experience. So I think the the liberal arts education that I received at Gus Davis, the ability, right, the ability to just um, be in a, and I think living on campus, right, was so important because it, it allowed me to kind of be in a space where I was just totally responsible for learning in that I was responsible for also, as I said earlier, for kind of creating the path that I wanted for myself. But but the, the instructors that I have, right, they also really challenged me to find a place for myself. And I say that because, for example, like one time I took a, um, gen- I think, a, a racism and sexism course, and there was an assignment. We were reading Peggy McIntosh on piece on white privilege and um the instructors the assignment was for us to write about what it's like to have white privilege and i went to the instructor afterward i said you know i can't write about that because i don't have white privilege <laughs> and she goes oh my gosh yeah of all the good things i do i'm so sorry there were three students three of us that were not one non-white right and so <laughs> we found a way to um find allow me to still complete the assignment and i think for the other students too but But my point is that that ability to be in that space where the smaller classrooms and I really mean this. Right. I I love being able to engage with my professors and, you know, Chris Gilbert were big brownies for us. And it was just the learning. It was so much fun because you're learning these really serious topics. Right. But you're in the space where people are actually treating you as an individual who's sort of in the making, right? Or becoming, you know, who you want to become. And those are so foundational for me because Davis enabled me to study abroad. And that I consider one of the most defining moments of my life is being able to spend a year in Europe and travel all over to these great places and add that I've read about and then coming back. And then, you know, I was in a CF or RA in that in itself was also a, a experience that you you can't tread lightly on because uh, the responsibilities, um, the ability to be in, you know, I, I was thinking about the quote that you just read about me in 1993. I can't remember exactly why I said it was so hard to be a minority student, but I can say that because I was one of the very few minority students. I was on the, you know, videos for recruitment and all of these things. But, but you know, Greg, I don't approach it as just being a token, right? Because I think the people who invited me to be in these different spaces, they also hope that I would contribute. So this has been my model all my life is that even if I'm invited to be in certain places as a token, I'm going to be the best person possible to contribute to that space and and make it mine too that it's not just theirs that I have to you know become a part of but everything I do it's about you know how do I bring how do I show up exactly the way I am and then take different parts that are good for me and and then also spread a little bit about my own values and thinking and ideas to other people that 
I mean, that for me is what equity and inclusion are really all about, not just, mm-hmm. oh, hi, here is Chia Vang now among student uh, or colleague, but but really, you know, what are you, what are you adding? How are you enriching the, 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 the space? I like the way you use that word and, and think about your, your education at Gustavus as a, as a space and, and your wonderful phrase, taking total responsibility, where you're totally responsible for your own education. I know what you mean. The professors are there as well, obviously, as you've stated. Yes, but but that, yeah. yeah, that is really, that is certainly when I think about my undergraduate work, what I loved about college um, and, and even miss about it in some ways. But um, thank you so much for all of this conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure. I don't think we ever even spoke when you were at Gustavus, but I was aware that you were there. And uh, as I said, I was certainly aware of the Asian American Club. And there's just so much uh, I've learned preparing for the podcast and, and hearing you today. I urge everyone to read, um, certainly people in Minnesota should read your book, uh, Among Minnesota, if they haven't already. And then others, especially the book uh, Among America, which I think is really, really an outstanding work. Um, thank you so much. Best of luck on the current project. We'll look forward to reading that as well. And uh, you're not teaching this summer, are you? No, I'm not teaching at all. So Good. it's a Happy little summer. break. Thank you. Same Same here. Happy summer, Chia. It's been a pleasure. And take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.